First John chapter 2 and we'll read verse 15 down to verse 17. Do not love the world. If you are there, First John 2, 15 to verse 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're continuing in our series of messages from First John on the subject of assurance of salvation. The subject itself is important because it's not enough to be sincere, to be an individual who genuinely wants to go to heaven. It is possible to be sincere and yet to be sincerely wrong. And hence, the need for us to, to check ourselves. On what premise do I really think that I am going to heaven? And then whatever that premise is, to go to the Bible and see whether God also says that is the right premise. So that you can be assured in this life that when your life is over, God will receive you. We have already noticed from much of chapter 1 and right into chapter 2, the various tests that John specifically gives us. And then, now he gives an actual injunction, the first appeal that he is actually making to his readers. He's no longer stating facts, but he, having encouraged us that he, he is writing to individuals who, who know God's forgiveness, who, who know God as their father, who are overcoming sin day by day as they are growing in faith in him who have tested something of the, the faithfulness of God, he now gives this, this appeal. And the appeal that ultimately he is giving is one that is a warning to us not to love the world. Last week when we began to look at this, we noticed that uh, it's because it's an opportunity cost that your love for the world robs you of your love for God. You, you cannot have the two in your heart at the same time. The extent to which you love the world is the same extent to which you are denying God of your love. We saw there that the world is not simply referring to the physical things around us, but rather it is referring to the, the world that is outside the kingdom of God. And the two are at war with each other. We saw that it is that world that is under the dominion of the evil one. That world about which the Bible says 
that the devil is the god of this world. It is that world that we are being told not to love. Today, John goes further as we go into verse 16 to tell us a little more concerning the reason why we should not love the world. And essentially, it is because of its source and because of its end. Because of its source and because of its end. And the activities that are tied up with the source and the end are activities that are not of God. And because you have two kingdoms, invariably it becomes that the source is the evil one, the enemy of God. And consequently, surely the devil cannot inspire you to do something that will glorify God in the end. He is an enemy of God. So surely, that in itself should be a sufficient warning to you that if I'm going to be a true worshipper of God, I must not love the world. He breaks it down for us handsomely into three sections. And all I want us to do then this morning is to look at each one of those three. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says, these are not from God, but from the world. So the first activity that John points to, that we should look at and say, surely this is wrong, therefore I shouldn't love the world, is what he is referring to here as the desires of the flesh. The flesh here obviously referring to our own fallen natures. And that drives us to an all-important point that we should always bring into the process of our thinking as we deal with whatever issue it is we are dealing with in life. And it is this, that although God made us perfect, absolutely perfect, when he made Adam and Eve in this world, something happened. Something tragic happened when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And it is this, our natures became corrupted. Adam and Eve, their nature became corrupted, and since then, all of us who have been born from that root are born with a fallen, corrupted nature. Obviously, the corruption being spiritual, in the sense that it is a nature that is now so self-centered, so selfish, so morally degraded, that in the process, God is thrown out of the picture, and we want what we want at whatever cost it's going to be. Hence, you can't miss it, for instance, in Adam's attitude towards Eve. 
God had given Eve to Adam, and before his own fall, his attitude was, wow, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And he treasured her with all his heart. Well, after the fall, when God goes to him and says, Adam, what happened? It's this woman whom you dumped here with me. She's the one who's brought about all these problems. Clearly now, I must be divorced from this. Punish her. Do whatever you want to do with her. She's the one who's caused all this. Surely not me. A clear attitude change. Self-centeredness, selfishness, has come into the point where I'm willing to damage my relationship in my marriage if only I can get away with it. Or the first two sons that are born in this world, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother. What has Abel done? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He has just worshipped God properly. That's all. But the brother is jealous, he's envious, and as a result of that, on a specific day, he murders his brother. Why? Again, it's the self-centeredness, the selfishness that reaches a level where I must have my own way, I must be happy, even if it means it is at the expense of somebody else. That has spread right across humanity to the present day. We are all born with a fallen nature. You see it with children, don't you? You give them a toy and they don't want to play with it. Until relatives come visiting. And a child in that family touches that toy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's mine. I love it. It's mine. But you were not playing with it to begin with. Again, it's that self-centeredness. Your friends have come. They'll be going. Eh? Guys, let them play with it for a few minutes. No! And all that happens when you grow up is that it gets more complicated, more complex. This fallen nature has its desires. And these desires are fallen desires. These desires rule our lives. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Ephesians and chapter 2. You will recall that in one of our evening services, we touched on that. Paul puts it this way, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. How did this manifest itself? First of all, following the course of this world. The desires of this world. The world which is in rebellion against God. You were following it. Secondly, following the prince 
of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The one who masterminds the rebellion against God. You were following him. And then thirdly, here it is. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the point here is simple. It is that we all possess a nature, listen to me, that desires that which is contrary to the mind and the law of God. Now, when we get saved... The, the reign of that fallen nature is broken. The power of that fallen nature is broken. But its presence is still with us. So you don't have to be a Christian long before you discover that in you are desires which are wrong which are sinful, which are morally degrading. It's in you, not outside you, in you. And often as a young Christian, you, you get perplexed, you are shocked that you should be wanting things that you know you should not engage in. And you begin to say, am I a Christian? Yes, you are. Now you have the capacity to say no to those desires. That capacity you didn't have before. But the point is that you still carry with you that sinful nature. Hence the Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians, puts it this way. Just two pages or so before the passage in Ephesians. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 16. Maybe let me just go a few verses up to make you see what he's trying to talk about. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. You're supposed to be free. Live, live free lives. But listen to this. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to indulge the desires of the flesh. Don't use it for that purpose. Because your fallen nature is still with you. It will still be desiring that which is wrong. Don't use your freedom as a Christian in order to indulge those things. How can you reverse it? Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It is as the Holy Spirit of God takes more control of your life that he inspires godly, holy desires within you. And that's the way in which you starve and weaken the sinful nature. And here is what it consists of. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh, 
for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and all things like these. And he warns, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That kind of lifestyle is one that characterizes those who are under the dominion of the evil one. That kind of lifestyle belongs to those who are headed for hell. So that lifestyle should not characterize you. So here's the question. We all possess a fallen nature. Are you yielding to it? Are you yielding to its desires? Are you? Between Sunday and Sunday, what instincts drive you? What is it that leads you? Is it the desires of the spirit? Or the desires of the fallen nature? Which one is it? And clearly what John is saying to us in our text is that the desires of the flesh don't come from God. No. They come from this world that is in rebellion against God. That's where they come from. But it doesn't stop there. He gives us another activity. And the activity that he points to is what he calls the desire of the eyes. The desire of the eyes. Back to our text. Verse 16. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. What does he mean by that? What is this desires of the eyes? Clearly, we need to see the eyes as uh, the gate through which we satisfy our own cravings. The gate through which we satisfy our own cravings. You see something and you want to get it. And clearly that's the relationship between the previous statement and this one. The desires of the sinful nature. What is it that finally gets me to, to get them? It is this. I've now seen. I've seen that which I crave after. I've seen that I now have the opportunity. And therefore, I'm now going to go after it. So it's essentially at the end of the day, the same thing. Except that the first was the cause. The second is the means. 
In other words, it is the gate through which the flesh says, even that, exactly, that's what I want. I must get it now. And they are varied. They are varied issues. For instance, in terms of sexual gratification, whether it's pornography or lust to do with an individual, it's the fallen nature that says, I don't care what God's boundaries might be in terms of waiting until I am in marriage and it must only be with my married partner. I don't care. I must satisfy this. That's the self-centeredness, that is the selfishness, even if it's going to be at the expense of my wife, or at the expense of my husband, at the expense of whoever it might be, I'm going to go for it. And then the eyes see. Is it a man seeing a beautiful lady, and he begins to salivate like a dog? And instead of saying, no, I'm a married man, forget that woman. Then pulls out the ring, puts it in his pocket. The desire of the eyes. Oh, he's watching on his computer, and here is a dirty picture. Instead of immediately saying, this is immoral, it's filthy, it's wrong. Instead, it's quickly close the door and now begins to look to satisfy that desire. So whatever it is at the end of the day, it's the desire of the eyes that's feeding the fallen nature. But you can multiply this into many other things. Seeing what your friend owns, and immediately you are saying to yourself, I must have that too. I must also get it. And you begin to fight whichever ways in order to have it. Or sports, which I'll come to a little later on, that has become a form of idolatry. You've seen it. You're not bending backwards. I'm going to watch it. It doesn't matter whether it's a time I'm supposed to be in church, a time I'm supposed to be worshipping with the Lord's people, whatever. I am going to watch it. It might be positions in, in society. You've seen your friend has a position. And you say to yourself, nay, why should he have that position alone? I'm going to have it too. And you begin to get into a competition that is not there, which is what Cain was doing with Abel. It might be food. As innocent as food might be, we need to eat to live. But you've eaten enough. And then you discover you didn't quite see that extra menu. Now you've seen it. Start squeezing your stomach to see if there's space. No space. I must still eat. And in the process you go into gluttony. Or drink. We've already been told about drunkenness. Again you see the brown bottle foaming by the mouth. And it beats you to it. 
you go for it. So you can multiply this. And all we are saying at the end of the day is that your eyes are seeing something. You break the laws of God in order to get it. And it's about this that Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Because your eye is able to be fixated on something that you ought not to be fixated on. And in the process drive you into the paths of sin because of those same desires. And Jesus' warning was this. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to rust in hell forever. That's how serious it is. And friends, John is saying that is not from God. That tendency to see things and you know that those things are feeding your fallen nature and you go for it, that's not from God, it's from the world, it's from the devil, it will destroy your life. That's what he's saying. There's one more area. The third activity that John points to which militates against your soul, your spirituality, your godliness, your morality, is what he calls the pride of life. Back to our text. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What does he mean by that? Clearly, it is the gratification, the, the, the sense of satisfaction, the, the, the self-praising instinct within us that either motivates us into action or which we experience and causes us to pat ourselves on the back for what we have achieved or what we have gotten. Let me quickly open that up a little further. I've said, first of all, it's what motivates us. Here you are, you've seen, it's your friend who has it, or you've seen that that I must get because I will make a name for myself. Because if I can only achieve that, people will be going, wow. So it's pride which is motivating you. And friends, again, it can be anything. It can be a job which you are eyeing and all these things, if I can only get it. And you're not thinking in terms of I can serve God through it. No, 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 no. God is the last issue on your mind. It's my name, my reputation. Wow. It can be a car. Wow! What will they think of me if I have that car? It can be a house. Wow! 
friend, if I can have something bigger, more glorious, everybody will be saying, wow! It's the pride of life that is motivating you in order to do all those things. It's not from God. It's not from God. Here we are starting a university. If what's motivating us is pride, that one day they'll say, wow! Then it's not from God. Even if it has the word Christian on it, isn't it, brother? It's not from God. If something is from God, it must be about God. It must be about His glory, His honor. So it doesn't matter what it is. The pride of life if that's what's motivating you, it's not from God. But also the other side is when you have now achieved something and that sense of chachave. Eh? It's us. If only people knew how great we were. That patting yourself on the back which steals glory from God. That's what it does. Because it's God who gave you the brains. It's God who's given you the life. It's God who's given you the ability. It's God who's given you the opportunity. It's God who's done everything. You are but a cog in the wheel. That's all you are. But now you're making it look as though you are in fact the everything that has brought this about. And so you take the place of God, you sin against Him. Now again, this is related to the previous two. Because the first, as we saw, was the cause, the fallen nature. The second, as we saw, was the means. The desires of the eyes satisfying that fallen nature. The last is the fruit. The fruit. Even when it is motivating you, ultimately it's motivating you because of the final fruit. So that I can make a name for myself. So instead of leaving you, as we've already noted, worshipping God praising God, it leaves you praising yourself or praising your family or praising your team or praising your church or your church leaders. You're praising the wrong people altogether. You still worship, worship from the living God and you start applying it to creatures of dust. To whom God can easily say, I'm taking my breath from you today, and that's it. And you see, when you are so idolatrous that it's human pride, it's about us, it's about my family, it's about my team, it's about my church or my church leaders. It's about us, about us, about us. You know what you're doing? You're taking your love away from Him that you should love even more because of His grace and blessing upon you. 
And that's the ultimate sin. Because the very reason why God has made the world is that He might be glorified. The reason why He has put you into this world is that He might be glorified. The reason why He has blessed you and given you the capacity to do so much that you are doing is that He might be glorified. The devil comes around and says, no, why should he receive the glory alone? I must get some of that glory. And consequently, he rebels against God. And then he brings about an entire human rebellion so that you now join him. You are now part of that company that's also busy Stealing his glory, sharing in his glory, wanting to be part of it. And John is saying, it is not from God. God cannot be inspiring you to steal his glory. He can't. It must be his and his alone. And he's warning people here, not those who are outside the church. Remember, he has just been saying in that poetic post passage that I'm writing to you who know forgiveness, you who know God as your Father, you who've overcome the world, you who've overcome the evil one, you who've known the faithfulness of God. You're the ones I'm writing to. And he's saying, beware. Beware. The world can take you away from this life of victory to the point where you begin to sin against God so much that you incur His wrath against you. Now you see, brethren, what makes this so dangerous is that often it's to do with things that are not patently Sinful. They're not sinful themselves. I mean, there's nothing sinful, for instance, about a car. It's just metal put together through a factory with a bit of rubber attached to it and filled with petrol. That's all. Doesn't matter how it looks. That's all. So you can't call it sinful. But what makes it sinful? is what's motivating you. It's the heart issue. That's what makes it sinful. What makes it sinful is whether God is in this issue, in this process. Am I thinking about God, His honor, His glory, as I'm doing all this? Or am I thinking about me and my own pride, my great name? What is it? Now, other human beings can't tell the difference, but God does. God listens to our hearts. He knows what's happening there. And he often has to pinch his nostrils. So the question is, is God in this? If, am I in this for God? There's a story told of a, of a grandmother who uh, had teenage children. The, the daughter got married out of town and now they had come back into town. The children had grown up. And she noticed that the children don't go to church anymore. So she began to really pressurize them to come to church. And uh, finally, they said, Grandma, it's not ideal. 
We go to, with you to church this Sunday. And next Saturday, you join us at our favorite movie place. To watch the movie. The, ma- the grandma said, fine. So the following Sunday, they went together to church. Then the following Saturday, they dragged her. She didn't want to show them that they were dragging her. She put on a nice smile, obviously, and they went to watch the movies. As the movie was about to begin, the grandmother said, My grandchildren, let us pray. And one of them, the eldest, said, Grandmother! We don't do such things here! And her response was, Then I'm out of here. Because anything you want me to do that has got God out of the picture, I'm not in it. And what a message she obviously sent home. That's the Christian faith. There must be no sphere of my life where God is not. There must be no sphere in my life where I cannot say, Lord, this is what I plan to do. Lord, be with me. Lord, receive the honor and the glory for all this. It doesn't matter what it is. The moment I realize that there is a vacuum where I've pushed God out of the picture, I know exactly who is reigning there. It's the devil. And I must have nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. And that's where idolatry comes in. It is when individuals push God out and bring in something else. And often, especially with respect to sport, that's what happens. Initially, we are innocent. But before long, it is now competing with God. You see what will happen next month, or rather this month, with the World Cup. FIFA World Cup. You see the renewing of DSTV fees. And most likely the renewing at the expense of my missions pledge or time. Just this month, just this month, it's World Cup. And home group meetings, Bible studies, church services are quickly being shoved out of the corner. Rather, out into the corner. Because Messi is playing tonight. And then your team wins. I doubt that it's going to be glory to God. That's the world, friends. That's the world that is opposed to God. And when you all go in that direction, God just says, there goes a heart that should have been praying to me 
and praising me. But it's gone the way of the world like everybody else. So we should ask ourselves the question, whatever this thing is I'm involved in, can I pray about it? This friendship that I have with him or her, is this something I can pray about? This new job I want to get, is this something I can literally lay before the Lord and say, Lord, you know my heart. This is what I want to do for you. This new home I want to buy or build. Can I pray about it? Is this the sphere God is in? Whatever it is. Is this something I can pray about? And then when I have it, is it something I can from my own heart say, Lord, you've done this to your glory, to your praise, receive that which is your due. And friends, I want to repeat, you can only judge yourself over these matters. The reason is because we can all be doing the same thing. Some are doing it to fulfill their fallen nature. Others are doing it to the glory of God. So at the end of the day, it's not so much that this person has bought a new car. Therefore, he must be worldly. Now, because if you begin to judge one another like that, you consume yourselves. Or someone is building a house, therefore he's now worldly. It's not like that. The question is, you yourself, what is motivating you? And remember, whatever is not within the sphere of God's kingdom, God's rule, is in the sphere of the fallen nature, the world, the devil. That's where it is. And the two are at war with each other. You cannot reconcile them. They cannot live in the same chest. They can't. What John is saying here, therefore, is that if you profess his name, do not love the world. Make that such a clear decision, such a clear commitment, that it will be as though you hate the world. But it will be very clear for you that anything that is not with God in it, I have nothing to do with it. Because it's taking away my heart, my love, my devotion to my God who has saved me from my sin. And I don't want it. And yet we must quickly add as I close that it's not easy. Because we carry with us a fallen nature. Of ourselves we are weak. And friends, our eyes are always looking. Always. And our fallen nature uses that gate to always say, and that, and that, and that. 
the end of the day, there's such discontentment in the soul that we must all cry to the Lord for strength, for grace, to enable us to let the world go by, to touch it lightly, but to have God at the center of our lives, being glorified in and through us. All for grace. Amen.